Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. It's on page 618. We're reading verses 1 to 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father, the son he delights in. And let us pray briefly. Lord, bless our pastor as he preaches. We pray that you let him proclaim Jesus Christ here today, and let his preaching be in the energy of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the fundamental Christian and biblical truths that we've looked at quite a bit over the last while is that every human being who ever lived was created for the exact same twofold purpose. And that twofold purpose is one, to bear God's image on the earth, and two, to represent God on the earth. If you look at the creation account in Genesis 1, this is made explicit, and then it's also magnified in Genesis 2 when the writer of Genesis then focuses on the creation of human beings in particular as part of God's creation. We find that human beings are made by deliberate design of God to bear his image and to represent him on the earth. As the only creatures of God's creation made uniquely to bear his image and represent him on the earth, we human beings also have a holy vocation. Each and every one of us that is also unlike any other aspect of creation, we are to worship the one true and living God. Together with the rest of creation, we are to bring glory to God, displaying in our being the glory of God, and bringing in our doing glory to God. And together with the angels in the heavenlies, we are to worship the one true and living God. Here's the operative term, truly. But among the creatures 
of the earth and therefore all of creation, we are to worship the one true and living God uniquely among God's creatures, even as we bear his image on the earth and represent him on the earth. This is why, if you were wondering, I'm just backwards enough to think that there is physical life nowhere else but on the earth. In any case, this morning and next Sunday, we'll jump into a nearly unfathomable, virtually incomprehensible topic. What is true worship? We can get a hint of the depth and the breadth of it when we realize there are so many different definitions and expressions of worship. Just within the various Christian traditions in the world today, the forms of worship are as diverse as are the nationalities, geographic regions, people groups, language clusters, and personal preferences. They are very nearly as varied as we individual human beings are varied. And it must also be said, not everything presented as worship is true worship. The Bible makes clear there are more forms of false worship than of true worship. Of course, there's false worship of false gods, but there's also the false worship of the one true God. And it's this last one, the false worship of the one true God, that we need to be concerned with most, both for ourselves and for others. If we've properly identified and associated ourselves with the one true God in Christ Jesus, then we immediately want to ensure that we are expressing true worship of the one true and living God, entrusting ourselves to him. So this morning and next Sunday, I hope to scratch the surface of what the Bible teaches us about true worship. What is true worship? Who are the true worshipers? How can we know? And perhaps equally important today, how can we be satisfying, rather satisfied, offering true worship to God? Now I say today because so much worship today is occupied with us and our enjoyment, which means necessarily then we are focused away from God and the true worship of God. We cannot be focused on ourselves and him at the same time. That would be a contradiction. As we noted the last few Sundays, we've returned to our series of messages that we began before Easter, Biblical Christians, who are we? And yet another of the biblical historically orthodox answers to the question is, we are worshipers of the one true and living God in Christ Jesus. That's who we are, or at least that's who we should be. Now let's look at the central truth of our message from God's word for this morning. You've got it there in your bulletin, also in the handout that I made reference to a little bit ago. Here it is. We express true worship of the one true and living God when we acknowledge him and his sovereign goodness with our whole lives, entrusting our eternities to Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now you'll immediately notice, perhaps surprisingly, that there's nothing in our central truth of our message for this morning 
on true worship about music or style, about prayer or even word ministry, whether in forms of teaching the Bible or preaching the gospel, or even sacraments of believer's baptism or holy communion or intercessory prayer for healing, reconciliation or other special needs, taking up an offering or outreach and evangelism. That's because none of these constitute in themselves true worship. At least, not worship that is true. They can be component parts of true worship. In fact, we might even say that worship cannot be true without some form of each of these. However, worship, if it is to be true, is in spirit and in truth more about God than us, more lifestyle than event, more substance than style. We'll talk more about spirit and truth next Sunday, but for now, let's, let's think about this. We do not go or come to church to do something called worship. So much as we gather together regularly and freely, joyfully and expectantly, sacrificially though not under obligation, as the worshiping church of the Lord Jesus Christ, joining with him in the singular worship of the one true and living God in gratitude, praise, prayer, and lifestyle, a lifestyle that we are already living the times that we are not here gathered together. In heavenly accounts of worship recorded in scripture, it seems that worship occurs. We might even see that worship breaks out as a product of one, being made right with God by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and two, whenever and wherever God enters the scene. In other words, the true worship recorded for us from the heavenlies is not segregated from the rest of reality. It's not a break from reality. Worship flows from and flows into and flows through and flows out of a relationship with the triune God made right by the work of Jesus Christ, joining with God and all others reconciled to him in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite heavenly worship scenes is recorded for us in the book of Revelation chapter five. Please listen, Uh, you you can follow along if you'd like in your text, but but I, I really want you to hear God's word here, this vision of worship that's going on in the heavenlies right now and will forevermore be going on. Starting with verse one of Revelation chapter five, then I, this is John speaking, John the apostle, who was moved to write this Revelation of Jesus Christ, that's what it is and that's what it's about. First five words of the book, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Then I, John, saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. But here's the thing. We're not there yet. On our best days, This is not heaven. We fallen human beings still reside on an earth corrupted by sin and death. We are not yet free from sin and death in the way that we will be free from sin and death in heaven. Where the cleansing of all our unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus will be complete and we will experience for the first time and forevermore freedom from sin and its curse, which is death. I'm sure you've heard, as I have from time to time, a worship leader or a preacher or the lyric of a song claim that we can or the Lord Jesus will bring heaven down to earth. We even sing a couple of them and it's a beautiful thought and aspiration. But worship cannot be and worship will not be here and now what it will be, and what it is there and then. We're not there yet. So the truly biblical alternative to such inevitably unmet expectations, impossible claims, and hopeful misrepresentations is understanding and actively pursuing the true worship in this life on this earth that is far more lifestyle than musical style. It's far more a long obedience in the same direction than thrilling event. More about God and less about us. And to that end, I remind us of our central truth of the message as we move to our focal text, we express true worship of the one true and living God 
when we acknowledge him and his sovereign goodness with our whole lives, entrusting our eternities to Christ Jesus, our Lord. Before we go any further this morning, let's pray once more. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that you would give me the ability by your spirit to speak it, to teach it, to proclaim it, and that we will be changed by it. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not there already, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. In a few moments, we'll look at the first 12 verses and their relevance to this massive but much understood and mischaracterized topic of worship. The book of Proverbs isn't usually presented as a, a book on worship. For example, I've never heard a sermon on worship from it or the wisdom tradition as worship. That is until this morning, so I'll take it in as you do too. Of course, the book of Psalms is one great exception, as it is considered to be both a book of wisdom and a book of worship, and so it is, as we're learning on Wednesday evenings. Nevertheless, our message this morning, and I hope we will see this by the time we leave, is that the biblical book of wisdom, which is Proverbs, is fundamentally about worshiping the one true and living God with our lives as a lifestyle. That obedience to God's word is worship. And it then engenders within us a lifestyle of worship as we follow Jesus. Worship is a challenging and deep concept because it contrasts and conflicts with nearly every aspect and value that the world pursues and our flesh desires. To worship truly means that we direct all our attention and all our energies to God and away from ourselves. But let me note quickly, I am not saying that true worship as I'm presenting it must be drab and dreary. It must not be. It is the one true and living God that we are worshiping. I am not saying that it must be painfully boring, even lifeless. It must not be. I am saying that not all that thrills is worship, especially in the church. With all the contemporary forms and styles and claims and definitions of worship, this can get really confusing when we begin to process important questions such as, is there such a thing as true worship of the one true and living God? If so, what is it? Is there false worship of the one true and living God, or is it whatever we offer? Is worship primarily about music, and therefore is true worship about having the best musicians, or the right musical style, or the lighting that we think we need, maybe even stage fog? Are those things worship or components of worship? In a word, no. None of these constitute true worship, and a reliance on any of them may indicate the opposite of worship, which is idolatry. And we must be very discerning here. I was made acutely aware of this important issue and the importance of asking such questions, and even more finding their thoroughly biblical and Christian answers during our time at New Life Church in Iowa. 
We arrived in Knoxville, Iowa in the summer of 1999, near the end of a period of about 30 years in church history in the United States that some scholars have called the church music wars. It still smolders a bit, but the heat of it seems largely to be going out. Unfortunately, it's going out, I think, mainly because more contemporary styles of music and practice are now dominant, and the traditional seems to be dying out with its practitioners and adherents, which makes me sad. But that certainly seems to be the trend. It makes me sad not only because, or even primarily because of the style of traditional forms. Styles come and go, and they do not, in and of themselves, constitute worship. The thing I lament most is the deep theology the traditional approach teaches. Singing is a great way to teach biblical Christian theology, and we're losing something here. Anyway, there in Knoxville, we inherited a Southern Gospel group who doubled as our worship team, and we began to struggle when this group wanted to both be free to play at various churches, including on Sunday mornings, but still retain the responsibility as for worship leadership in our church. And while we were in difficult discussions about how that might or might not work, one of the members of the Southern Gospel group offered a justification for them somehow to continue as our primary worship leaders when they were available. When they were available. <laughs> he said the following, Mark, I just think the Holy Spirit has specially anointed Southern Gospel music to bring us and those we serve into true worship. My response to him was as immediate as it was without contemplation. I called him by name and said, that's fine for you and your group, maybe even our church, but what do you think believers in Nairobi, Kenya would think about that statement about worship. We went on to talk about the fact that our church was not in Nairobi, Kenya, fair enough, but that making general statements about what we prefer is likely unwise and possibly untrue. We like what we like and maybe it should end there, and we both agreed at that point. But just his statement and, and my responsive question highlight the importance of getting and applying some biblical and historically orthodox Christian truth on the matter of worship. Otherwise, we could, and many do, get mis misled into thinking true worship only happens when we feel good about it, when it appeals to our sensibilities, when it's effectively about us. But maybe not. Maybe true worship isn't about us at all, except our proper place and posture in it. So let's look at it for the next few minutes. What constitutes true worship, or for our purposes, what constitutes truly biblical Christian worship of the one true and living God? You'll want to refer to your handout there, that, so you didn't have to write feverishly if you wanted to get the points down, for those of you who keep score. But assuming our passage, if not Proverbs as a whole, at least these 12 verses can be read as instructions for worship. Number one, true worship of the God of the Bible, and by that we mean the one true and living God in Christ Jesus. True worship flows from a love for God and God's word. True worship flows from a 
love for God, and God's word. I often wonder whether people think that what constituted faith, worship, even salvation in the Bible has changed or has become somehow irrelevant to us today. Though methods do impact the integrity of the message, I am not talking here about methods of expression. I am talking about the substance and the expression themselves, what is believed and what is actually expressed. To a lesser extent, we might tend to split the Old and New Testaments, assuming or implying that what constituted faith, worship, even salvation in the Old Testament has changed or it's somehow become irrelevant with the coming of Messiah Yeshua. And the subsequent writing of the Gospels and the New Testament changed these fundamentals. These fundamentals have not changed. If we look and listen carefully, the object of our faith and hope, the true focus of our true worship, and the basis for our salvation did not and will not change because God has not changed. The basis of his mercy and grace which is the substitutionary death and justifying resurrection of Jesus Christ, also has never changed. Just to be clear on this point, Old Testament saints looked ahead in hope to the finished work of God's justifying grace and mercy in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. New Testament saints, including us, look back in faith at the same finished work of Jesus Christ. So the basis for our salvation is exactly the same the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All these unchanging fundamentals, we can say biblical Christian faith, biblical Christian salvation, and biblical Christian worship begin with a spirit-born love for God that is grounded in and reflected by a spirit-enabled obedience to his truly authoritative word. Again, we'll look at uh, truth and spirit next week. Um, more particularly, but uh, at least that gives us some helpful information, a bridge, if you will, to the text. Look with me there, verses 1 and 2. My son, and I, I think we can, without any violation to the text or its meaning, its intended meaning anyway, say, my children, my child, maybe. Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And my insight into this text is the first major point of truth that you have there on your listening guide. True worship of the God of the Bible, the one true and living God, from our point of view, looking back at the cross in Christ Jesus flows from a love for God and God's word. This is not new to Proverbs. It's not exclusive to Proverbs. In fact, if we look at this topic itself, we find it in every one of the 66 books from Genesis, some people say, to maps. This is a truth, that true worship flows from a love for God and a love for his word. And that love for his word and that love for God is expressed in obedience to his word. Our faith is expressed through obedience. Well, there's another reason I believe we ought to receive wisdom literature and Proverbs, or at least our passage in Proverbs 3, as instruction, not only for the living of a wise and productive life of faith, which it is, but also for true worship as a matter 
of lifestyle. This is it. Number two, true worship of the God of the Bible, the one true and living God in Christ Jesus, expects, accepts, and responds to God's personal presence. This is what Dr. Henry Blackaby calls experiencing God, knowing and doing the will of God. I've commended this discipleship study many times over the years. Knowing and doing the will of God cannot and will not be accomplished apart from experiencing God, that is being in, a, in an active, living relationship with him. His presence, his love, his word lived out, productivity, joy, and the other fruit of the spirit. The converse is also true. We cannot and we will not experience in God, experience God rather, apart from knowing and doing his will. Essentially, this is Jesus' John 15 living vine model of relationship. Spiritual growth, productivity, and pruning, and the life and lifestyle of worshiping God in the Holy Spirit, and apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, which is to say we will do nothing of eternal consequence. Believe it or not, realize it or not, we here at Bethesda Church have benefited greatly from this approach over the last 15 or so years of knowing and doing God's will. Through an ongoing relationship and experience with him, as he continues to provide for all our needs, many times even before we knew of the need, and keeping us in hope. That's my testimony. And perhaps it is yours also. Experiencing God, knowing and doing the will of God is based on seven biblical spiritual realities. You have them there in your listening guide on the other side from the points of the message. Realities two, five, and seven relate most directly to worship, I think. Here are all seven. God is always at work around you. Number two, God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. Number three, God invites you to become involved with him in his work. Number four, God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, the church, meaning godly counsel, and circumstances to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. Number five, God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Number six, you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. And number seven, you come to know God by experience as you obey him and he accomplishes his work through you. If you want to know more, come talk to me and maybe we can put a group together. But for now, let's look at verses 3 and 4 of Proverbs 3. Let not steadfast love, this is chesed, which we in English don't have a, an accurate translation for. It's bigger than anything that we can put together in one term at least in English. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Of course they won't, right? But the point here is don't forget them. Don't dismiss them. Don't apply to them motives that are not good, right, and true. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God 
and of man. In other words, true worship of the Bible, true worship of the God of the Bible, rather, we don't worship the Bible, the one true and living God in Christ Jesus expects, accepts, and responds to God's personal presence. In other words, in some real way, we can say that true worship, according to Proverbs 3 and elsewhere, is experiencing God by knowing and doing his will. Not the discipleship study per se, but the lifestyle of walking with God and worshiping him by faith as his people. There's plenty more in Proverbs 3 about what I'm calling true worship, starting with number three on your listening guide. True worship of the God of the Bible, the one true and living God in Christ Jesus, is trusting him with all our heart and acknowledging him in all our ways and revering or fearing him, if you like, by adopting his ways as our ways. If by now you're thinking and maybe even saying to your neighbor, this isn't sounding so much like worship as daily living with Christ and for Christ. Well, yes, you're exactly right. Except that from a thoroughly biblical point of view, worship, no, true worship, is grounded in a real and personal relationship of love with God in Christ Jesus. It's nurtured by times of ingathering and by the Holy Spirit and experienced as unbroken mutual fellowship with God and his people as we walk into an eternal future together with God and each other. Look with me now at verbs, uh, Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I just have to take 30 seconds to do my little soapbox here. Whenever we see Lord in, in capital letters, you all have heard this before if you've been here more than once, is an expression of God's personal name. This is not a title. This is God revealing a part of himself to his people. We first find it in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And we see it throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And he makes clear to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 that this is his personal name. Who, will, who shall I say sent me, Moses asked him. And he says, Yahweh. Tell them the God of Israel sent you. So when we read this, I think the King James has it, has, has, does very well in terms of motive. Jehovah is probably not an accurate expression of what's in the biblical text, in the Hebrew text, but at least they're attempting to highlight the fact that this is God's personal name. This is not a title. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor Yahweh with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. 
Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I, I just read beyond what I should have, but that's okay. We can hear it again. Here we see the true worship of the God of the Bible, the one true and living God in Christ Jesus, is trusting him with all our heart and acknowledging him in all our ways and revering or fearing him by adopting his ways as our ways. Finally, remember there's one more message on what constitutes true worship next Sunday. So if I haven't gotten to your value or issue concerning worship, at least hang in there with me through next Sunday before you give up. But here's the last one. It's number four. True worship of the God of the Bible, the one true and living God in Christ Jesus, is submission to his sovereign goodness and his steadfast love for us. As we tried to say earlier, true worship includes and employs music. In fact, the best music we can reasonably and regularly produce. Notice what I said there. The best music we can regularly and reasonably produce not because we're doing a performance, but because we're offering to the Lord our best, the first fruits in essence, offered to the God whom alone we worship, about the God whom alone we worship, and to please the God whom alone we worship. But true worship is so much more than music and it's a whole being experience. True worship will also rightly include a variety of prayers, readings of scripture, teaching the Bible, preaching the gospel, works of ministry, spiritual fellowship, evangelism, and outreach, each and every one of them offered in the presence of God by his spirit in his power. But true worship is none of these in and of themselves because true worship is much more. True worship encompasses our whole lives of faith and hope in God, in Christ Jesus, in whom we live and move and have our being. True worship is bigger and it's more. So let's look briefly at the last four verses of our passage for this morning, verses 9 through 12. And as we do, let's specifically consider its application in the context of true worship. Here goes, Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 12. Honor Yahweh with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, my child, do not despise Yahweh's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For Yahweh reproves him whom he loves as a father, the child in whom he delights. All of that to say what our central truth says. We express true worship of the one true and living God when we acknowledge him and his sovereign goodness with our whole lives in trusting our eternities to Christ Jesus, our Lord. May this describe our aspirations in worship, to worship the one true and living God in Christ Jesus, truly and increasingly so, even as we increasingly become his true people, becoming more true. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we need your intervention. We need for you to speak to us, to encourage us, to change us. I think we can even say transform us into your people. 
people who worship you truly, people who live the lives that you have intended from the beginning, people who bear your image on the earth in our place and time and represent you truly on the earth in our place and time. Lord, help us to understand step by step moving forward with you when you are moving forward, waiting when you are you're waiting to know you, the one true and living God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God, our Father, we thank you for these truths. Help us to live them out in our lives in ways that look like, sound like, and in fact are true worship. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time. Good, good day.